Good morning and amen. I have some questions for you this morning. And if you answer these right, you would have been able to win Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I didn't think they were that hard because they gave you the answer at the bottom, so I felt really smart. But let me, let me give you some questions. You could jot it down, keep it in your mind, see if you get them right. This is for a million dollars for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Which of these U.S. presidents appeared on the television show Laugh-In? You have to be really old to know this one, but... Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, or Gerald Ford? Now, no, this is live stream, so nobody can see the audience here. Does anybody know that? No. Richard Nixon. All right. Nick Camelloni's not here, I don't think, but I think he would get this one. The Earth is approximately how many miles away from the sun? 9.3 million, 39 million, 93 million, or 193 million? 93 million. I did not get that one right at all. All right. I'll give you one more. I like this one. Which insect shorted out an early supercomputer it inspired the term computer bug. Was it the moth? Was it the roach? Was it the fly? Or was it the Japanese beetle? Nobody knows? Anyone want to take a guess? Ah, the moth. I got that wrong too. So I never would think that it was the moth. So why am I asking you questions? These people could go on a show, on a TV show, and answer 14, 15 questions, and if they get them all right, they win a million dollars. This show has been on for 21 years, and you get a lifeline, you get a 50-50. Now, believe it or not, you actually get to ask the host. And the host was like, oh my gosh, these people are in trouble because he really didn't know anything. So asking questions and answering them in our society on TV will give you a million dollars or more. But in our scripture today, we're going to see that Jesus was asking his disciples questions. It's so important to get them right because not a million dollars, but eternity is in the balance. Heaven or hell. Literally, heaven or hell. So we go through this this morning. I want you to listen to the questions and make sure when you leave here this morning, you're asking yourself, do you, do you know the answers? We're going to be in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be covering verses 20 through 22 to 38. So we're going to be studying this this morning. And I'm going to open in prayer. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that Your salvation is so much more worth than any money, any riches we could ever, ever imagine. To be in heaven with You one day and to live on this earth knowing that we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit inside of us is priceless. There is nothing we could ever give for that. And we thank You for that, Lord. And we love You. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in Mark 8, we see Jesus walking with His disciples. And He's asking them a question. But before that, He healed Barnabas of blindness. And Barnabas is there, and Jesus heals him, but he heals him in a really... I'm reading this this week, and I'm saying this is odd. Because our Lord was able to speak and stop the storm. 
He was able just to say a word. He spoke and all creation came into being. And yet he heals Bartimaeus who is blind and who can't see and he does it in stages. And when, I don't know about you, but when I read Scripture, I'm like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't match up with who and what our Lord can do. But there's a reason for it. So he, he starts to heal Barnabas from blindness, and he says, can you see? And Barnabas says, well, everyone kind of looks like he's walking, they're walking around like trees. So he doesn't see the whole thing. He doesn't see everything all at once. And then, he touches him, heals him, and he can see completely. I mentioned that moving into our story because it's just like us, right? It's just like me. It's just like you. We don't always see everything right away. And it takes some time. And it made me think this week, I have to be so much more gracious and merciful to the people around me and not be like, hey, how come you don't get it? Why don't you understand? You dummy. We can't be like that. I don't want someone talking to me like that. We have to understand that God is so gracious to us and gives us time. So we'll see this this morning. Jesus is walking with his disciples to the village of Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questions his disciples saying, Who do the people say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? They told him saying, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? I'm going to keep repeating myself till you say, stop repeating yourself. You need to answer that question for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now here's his disciples. They've been with him for two and a half years. They have seen amazing things. The paralytic healed. Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven. Him stopping the storms. They have seen things we will never see. And yet, when they get to this question, you'll see what happens. Who do the people say? And think of it this way. Answer the question for yourself, but also think, what does your family say about who Jesus is? What does your friends say? What does your co-workers say? What does the world say? Well, their world at that time said they think maybe it's John the Baptist. And I'm like, how in the world could that be possible? John the Baptist was actually around when Jesus was around, and he's dead. How could they say John the Baptist? But they say John the Baptist. They say Elijah. They say maybe a prophet. The reason why the world is thinking this way is they are saying, look, we need someone to come who is mighty in power and is going to wipe out the the powers to be, and they're going to make their kingdom right now, here and now, by force. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking for who is standing in front of them. But who do you say that I am? Again, they've been with them, he's, they've been with them two and a half years. He fed the, the, the thousands of people out of nothing. Imagine being there. And seeing Jesus actually taking just some fish and some loaves and automatically feeding thousands and thousands of people. I don't know about your spiritual life, but mine is gradual, like that healing I told you about, about the blindness. But recently, Linda and I were able to come together and knowing we have so many burdens, and I'm sure you do too, and and pray together. And just lay them at God's feet and say, Lord, You're our Lord. You're our Master. 
You're our prophet. You're our priest. We need your help. And I tell you, if you do that, he will not disappoint you. We were like, thank you, Lord. First of all, it gets all the stuff off your shoulders and your mind and your heart and puts it where it should be on your God who can handle anything. Anything. Just think of the world. If the world actually believed in what Peter's going to say in a second, what a world we would live in if people knew that Jesus was the Messiah and He was the Christ. Is He, another question for you, the Lord of your life? Is He? You need to answer that question. And Jesus just asked them point blank. Listen, whether you're five years old or 105, this is a question you need to answer. Mark answers this question. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark. The first verse in Mark, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He answers it for us, and then he spends the rest of the time in the Gospel telling us who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. He's your Master. Peter gets it right. Peter says, you are the Christ. And and the inference here in these verses, if you're looking at them, is that Jesus agreed with him. And so did the disciples, because he doesn't actually say anything except, don't say anything. He doesn't say, you're wrong. So Peter was right. You are the Christ. You are Lord. You are a prophet. You are a priest. You are my Messiah. Do you know that Peter was the first person in the Gospel of Mark to actually say, you are the Christ? We've had the demons say it. We've had other people say it, but he's the first one. John MacArthur says that everything up to this point leads up to this. It leads up to them saying, you are the Christ, and everything after this flows from it. It's a pivotal point. This is the diamond in the, in the whole Bible right here. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is in Matthew. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You have to understand, I stand here confessing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because my Father in heaven has revealed it through the Holy Spirit to my heart, to my soul, and my mind. Other than that, I would never be standing here. And I'll tell you, I told Linda this week, I don't want to preach on this. I don't want to. It's too heavy. It's too much to get wrong. You don't want to get this wrong. You want to get it right. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Look, you have a lifeline here. The Holy Spirit is our lifeline. And I wish our society would forget about trying to be rich. We live in Lake Grove in New York. You and me are the richest people on the face of the earth. People are living on pennies a day. And yet we all walk around saying, I don't have anything. I need more. 
And that's an indictment to me, not so much you, but to all of us to say that where is our focus? It needs to be on Jesus Christ as our Lord and to seek Him first. Jesus said, don't say anything because it wasn't a full message. So He tells them, don't say anything. Why would He say that? They don't have the Gospel in this message. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But He's going to tell them now what the full message is. And I have to tell you a story. About 10 years ago, my mom and I went into St. Catherine's Hospital. My dad was laying in a hospital bed. And we're sitting there, and I will never, ever forget this. I'm sure my family won't because they got the phone call. And you can't make this up. One doctor comes up to my dad, and my mom is standing here, and I'm standing here, and the doctor comes up and says, Mr. Harrigan, I have to tell you very sad news. Your heart is failing and we don't think you're going to make it. Worst news you could ever get in your whole entire life. My dad turned pale. He looked at my mom and I. She had tears in her eyes. We didn't know what to do. But it doesn't end there. Another doctor comes up. Mr. Harrigan, I have really bad news for you. Another doctor. He already got the worst news you can ever have. Another doctor comes up and says, Mr. Harrigan, your kidneys are failing. We don't think you're going to make it. He leaves. Another doctor comes up to my father and says, Mr. Harrigan, your organs are failing. We don't think you're going to make it. Three times. And we're standing there not knowing what to do. We make phone calls. We tell everybody. My dad's looking. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I look at my father and I say, he really doesn't look like he's dying. He looks okay. They put him in the hospital. They do some tests. And they come to him again. Mr. Harrigan, we have some news for you. You're not dying. You have an infection. And it's making it look like you're dying. Praise God. We were so happy. But if you don't have all the information, you shouldn't say anything. And they didn't have all the information at that time. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? Do you say he's a prophet? Someone who just was a really nice man who went to the cross because he was a really nice man? I doubt it. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? The next point that we have to understand is the next question for you and the next question for me is do you understand the plan? Do we understand the plan of God? Verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. Many things to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter, get this, Peter who said, You are the Christ. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But returning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Look, look at scriptures here. It's saying, very small little word, I think it's four letters, it's the word must. He must suffer. He must be killed and rise again. He must. Now, I'm going to read this to you because as I told you, I don't want to get this wrong. 
So I'm going to read you from a commentary that I uh, was in this week. It says, Christ's declaration of his death and resurrection. Let us observe the full declaration which our Lord makes of his own coming death and resurrection. We read that he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. The events here announced must have, surrounded straight, must have sounded strange to the disciples. To be told that their beloved master, after all his mighty works, would soon be put to death. Must have been very tight, must have been heavy tidings and past their understanding. But the word which convey the announcements are scarcely less than the event. He must suffer, must be killed, and rise again. Why did our Lord say must? Why did he say must? Impossible. Did he mean that he was unable to escape suffering, that he, that he must die by compulsion of a stronger power than his own? Impossible. This could not have been the meaning. Did he mean that he must die to give the world a great example of self-sacrifice and self-denial, and that is, and this alone, made his death necessary? Impossible. There is far more deeper meaning than the, in the word must, suffer and be killed. He meant his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for human sin. Now listen, this is the point. It took me a while to get here. He meant his death and passion were necessary in order to make atonement for human sin. Without shedding his blood, there could be no remission. Without the sacrifice of his holy body on the cross, there could be no satisfaction of God's holy law. He must suffer and make reconciliation for iniquity. He must die because without his death and a propitiatory offering, sinners could never have life. I could not have life. Spiritually speaking, neither could you. He must suffer because without his sufferings, our sins could never be taken away. In a word, he must be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. He must. He must die for us. And it may not make a lot of sense to us either. You may say, well, does that mean that, you know, I go to work every day, I love my wife, I love my family, and the guy next door who just murdered his whole family, I'm going to be singing praises with him one day in heaven? Ask yourself that question. Get really deep into the gospel. What does it mean? It means that Jesus' grace and love and mercy covers our sin. And I could tell you, and I used to love when Pastor Musser would do this, and I say this all the time, he would say, what if all your stuff, what if all your, everything was plastered so everyone could see it? What if that happened? What if you could read Mark Harrigan's mind on the screen? And you would say, I'm probably worse than a murderer. God's grace and mercy is for everybody.
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was, listen, he was pierced through for our, for your, for my transgressions. He was crushed for your and my iniquity. I love here in Scripture it says Jesus spoke plainly. I mean, he just plainly spoke to them. I have to die, and and I'm going to rise again. I don't think they actually heard the rise part. They probably missed that. Peter lovingly but ignorantly takes Jesus aside. He rebukes him. Imagine going to God and saying, you know what, God? You're wrong. And I thought here where Jesus turns around to the whole crowd and he says to everybody, hey, Peter's rebuking me, but he's, now Jesus is rebuking Peter in front of everybody. I'm like, wow, that's kind of, that's tough. But it, it's, it's the most loving thing that Jesus could do. Because when there's the wrong information about the gospel, it has to be corrected. And it was the most gracious and loving thing that he could do, even though Peter was probably standing there being like, oh, I got that answer wrong. We need to love those around us, as I said before, with love and compassion, even if we think we're right and we think they're wrong. It's a, in the Scripture, it says, take the log out of your own eye. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Not because Peter was Satan, but because Peter was doing what Satan did in the wilderness. He's trying to take Jesus away from the cross. Move him away from dying for your sin and my sin. He's moving him away from what he has to do. That's why he says, get behind me, Satan. We must all seek the kingdom of God. Listen to God's word. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol for you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness and joy in your right hand is pleasures forevermore. What is your mind thinking about when you think about Jesus? Who he is and what his plan is? And if we are living as New Village Church and our members, and then we're not seeing people around us who need the Lord and who need Jesus Christ and need to be saved, need to be redeemed, then, then we as a people at New Village Church are missing it. We need to be able to see with Jesus, or we need to be able to tell them that your Lord died for you and He rose for you. The world needs to know this. They need to know what Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies now this starts to get confusing but everyone who lives and believes in me will never die and then he says do you believe this and i believe it was martha i i 
I could get it wrong, Martha or Mary, so excuse me, but yes, Lord, I believed and that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. The plan for Jesus is to die and rise again, but it doesn't make any sense. Think about the disciples. Think about them. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. The other disciples, most of them, were martyred. They gave their lives because they knew the first answer. Who do you say that I am? And they knew the plan. But they didn't always know the plan. That comes gradually and later. Look, there's a cost to discipleship. If you think, I'm going to say a prayer and ask Jesus into my heart, and then I'm going to go about my merry way, you have another thing thinking, that, that's not going to happen. God does not say, say you believe in me, and then go your merry way, have a great life, don't ever think about me again, and I'll see you in heaven. There is a cost to saying, Jesus, you are my Lord, and I want to follow you, I want to follow you no matter what. There is a cost to discipleship. Paul said, I know whom I believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what he has entrusted to me in Timothy. Do you understand the plan? Who do you say Jesus is and do you understand the plan? Last question and last point. Do you daily take up your cross? Do you take up your cross? And he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And I have to tell you, my wife will tell you this, they will say like a joke or a riddle every time I say I don't get it. And they always look at me like, what do you mean you don't get it? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Doesn't make any sense to me. And they, they laugh because it's kind of simple. It's plain right there. But as you can see here, Jesus is using words here. Save, in order to save your life, you have to lose it. I've read this over and over and over, and I'm like, I don't get it. It's hard to understand. These are requirements of discipleship. Discipleship. Maybe so few are willing to truly follow Christ. It says you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross, and you must follow Jesus. These are discipleship rules. You must do this. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow Jesus. You have to get the first two questions right. You have to get them right in order to get to this point. Jesus is giving them an invitation here. It's clear. Follow him. But hear it clearly. He is not saying you believe in me and like I said before, go on your merry way. This is serious stuff. 
You won't grapple with anything else more serious than this in your life. You may think you do. You may go about your daily life and think that the pressures of your life and the things outweigh this, but answering these questions are the most important thing. Scripture says that Jesus must suffer many things. Do you know the Scripture says that if you follow Jesus, you must deny yourself. Alistair Begg says denying yourself means you must denounce all self-idolatry. Again, don't understand. I don't think I'm a, I, I, I don't, you know, think of myself that way. Do you? Do you put yourself up so high above everybody else? If we really truly look at our hearts, I guess we do. Because that's what Scripture is saying. But you must denounce all self-idolatry. You know, I'm a, I'm a movie buff. I love movies. I, I was raised on movies. I just love to watch them. So I, I'm like, what kind of a movie will show someone who is selfish? So I thought, of, I thought of The Chocolate Factory, that movie, and I know I'm not getting the whole, uh, the whole title there, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Do you know the name Veruca Salt? Does anybody know that name? Daddy, I want it now. I want it now. There's a whole song of her singing that I want it now. I want the whole world. And I want it now. She was mean to her parents. She was mean to the Oompa Loompas. She was mean to everybody. She was a rotten, rotten, rotten egg. And she met her end. Which I wish she did, but they were nice in the book and nice in the movie. And at the end they said, oh, she's okay. And her father followed her down the chute or wherever they went as well. Baruch Salt, I want the whole world, and I want it now. I was playing that this morning, and Kara said, why are you listening to that song? I was listening to it because I want to hear exactly what she was saying. It's a catchy tune, but if you listen to the words, it's almost unbelievable what she's saying. And the other movie that I thought about was The Grinch That Stole Christmas. Love that movie. You're a mean one. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel. Mr. Grinch, you're a bad banana. Anyone watch that movie and see what he is like? Our souls are like that. We are selfish. Even if we don't think so. Linda and I have gone to marriage life conferences many times. We love them. And yet I remember each time they have a theme. And the theme is if you're married, and not if you're not married, but in particular you're there for a marriage conference, you're selfish. You have a selfish bent. You want what you want. And in order to, to get around that, you need to come together as one and work in unity and not be so selfish. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm not selfish, and looking at Linda, and I don't know about she's selfish, but I'm not. I am not selfish. Just saying that makes me selfish. But he says you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Philip says if anyone wants to follow in my footsteps, he must give up all right to himself. Are you willing to follow Jesus Christ and give up all rights to yourself? Take up his cross and follow me. 
He's not talking about his death. He's talking about their death. He's talking, are you willing to die for Jesus? Are you willing to die for your Lord? You may not have to. We don't live in a world where people are dragging us out of our house and wanting to kill us. But are you willing to give your life for Jesus? To deny yourself and give your life for Him? Heck, sometimes I don't even open my Bible. I don't even pray. And am I willing to die for Him? I'm talking about me now. Are we willing to give our lives for Him? MacArthur says, what is the cross? It is suffering that comes because of a faithful connection to Christ. Do you have a faithful connection to Jesus Christ? The other thing is, trust me, the cross is heavy and you cannot carry it on your own. You're not meant to carry it on your own. Don't even try. Must be carried with God. And following me means let him be following me. You must be following him all the time, not just once, but always. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now here's the point that I get confused at, and we're almost done. But here's what it says. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. So let me read from somebody else who explains it much better than, than I ever could. Counterintuitive means something is counter to what intuition would lead one to expect. In other words, your logic and best judgment leads you in one direction, but reality is the complete opposite. For instance, to prevent the flu virus... Doctors take a form of that virus and stick it in your arm. It shouldn't work, but it does. That's counterintuitive. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Really? I'm going to somehow find my life by giving it up? Yes, exactly. When you lose your life for Christ's sake, you think of others before yourself. You give generously even when you, don't think, even when you don't have much. And you make Jesus famous even when it diminishes your reputation and makes you look bad. When you live this way, for Christ's sake, you will begin to discover life beyond what you have ever experienced. Do we live this way? Do I live this way? Jim Elliott was a 28-year-old missionary. I looked him up this week, and I know he's a missionary, but I said, you know, let me see if he has any sermons. I listened to Jim Elliott preach a sermon. I was blown away. I, this man's passion for Jesus Christ. He was sold out, obviously. At 28 years old, he is speared to death and killed by the, the very people he was saying Jesus loves you. And they murdered him. They martyred him. This is what he wrote in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Think of the world we live in. 
Just think of it. Are we living that way? You know, there's a reason that Who Wants to Be a Millionaire has been on the show or the TV for 21 years. There's a reason. People's hearts and minds want to be rich. But the richest you could ever be is to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Even if your mind and your heart and your soul sometimes don't think that. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Listen to Scripture. Then he gave them a parable in these words. Once upon a time, a rich man's farmland produced heavy crops. So he said to himself, What shall I do? For I have no room to store the harvest of mine. Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll put down barns and build bigger ones where I can store all my grain and my goods and I can say to my soul, I can say to my soul, you have plenty of good things stored up for years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and have a good time. But God said to him, you fool. This very night you will be asked for your soul. Then who is going to possess all that you have prepared? That is what happens to a man who hoards things for himself and is not rich where God is concerned. Following Jesus Christ will most likely not give you a million dollars, but the riches that we gain and that you will gain far exceed anything that you could ever get in this world. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, said this, and I want to end on her quote. She said, I have one desire now. To live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord. I have one desire now. To live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. That's what she said. Can we echo what she's saying? She answered all the questions right. Who do you say Jesus is? He is the Son of God. Do you know and understand the plan of God that He died and rose again for you? Do you understand that? And do you daily take up your cross every day? Are you willing to be ashamed, not ashamed, but embarrassed maybe of mentioning the name of Jesus when people laugh and snicker at you? Are you willing to be able to even die for Jesus? You get these questions right. Trust me, the riches are beyond anything you can ever imagine. Think of it. One day we will all, we will all be in heaven singing praises to our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the words this morning. Forgive me for my words and my babbling, but I pray that what comes through is You and Your words and Your sacrifice for us. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.